Joyce Cheryl used to tell me and Pastor John, if you're not going to stay on that pulpit, we should put a for sale sign on here and give the money to missions or somewhere. So I know some of you appreciate it, and I should make use of it once in a while. <laughs> if you followed me and my family on Friday afternoon and evening, we did something probably a lot of you did in the past week or so, and that's make your way somewhere downtown and stand in some sort of line uh, and eat some sort of food you normally wouldn't, right? <laughs> maybe some of you did, maybe, maybe not all of us did. Uh, if you came on Friday night and uh, caught me at approximately uh, 6.21 or so, uh, you would have caught me mid-bite of eating a deep-fried Oreo, which, of course, my kids wanted to try, and we did. Sure, why not, right? What sounds more unhealthy and good tasting? But if you caught me uh, in, a, in uh, mid-bite of the deep-fried Oreo or the elephant ear we, we ate after that, uh, you might have heard me quick reply, don't judge me. How often have we heard that or said that to, to someone that may disapprove of uh, something I'm doing, and sure, everybody knows a deep-fried Oreo is not a kale salad, uh, and so don't disapprove of what I'm doing, but how often have we, we thought that said that, uh, because th there's something in our hearts, and I also believe something wider culturally uh, where we live that uh, is averse to people disagreeing but disapproving of what we do, right? There's this, uh, and the word in the Bible is judgment, which can mean a few different things. But when we look at the book of Revelation, that, that's kind of the topic we're talking about. We just uh, say in the creed that the Lord Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. God calls himself judge, and it's something we probably shy away from, and yet it's something we actually need. Judgment... Uh, my heart, and, and I believe many of us probably have a bit of a love-hate relationship with judgment in general, right? I don't want other people to condemn my behavior because deep-fried Oreos taste good, but I had to share them with my kids so I didn't get as many as I would have eaten, right? We don't want people to condemn our behavior, yet if you've been defrauded a bunch of money, you, you want to get it back. That seems right, and I agree with you. And we don't want... Other people telling us what, what we do is wrong, but yeah, we're probably happy at times to tell others that what they're doing is wrong. And we don't like the thought of judgment, however we think of it, but if we do A work in a class, we expect that we should get an A because that's fair. That would be a fair judgment of our work, right? And so... Judgment is one of those things I believe we, we can't live with and we can't live without. You know, we want our mistakes overlooked. We want others to pay. We put people in places of society called judges, and we want them to judge rightly the law in situations, sure. But when it comes to God, then we say, well, well how could God be, be judging? That sounds, that sounds mean, how could God be judgmental? That, that, sounds, uh, that sounds cold and harsh and, and maybe even moody. We'll unpack this in pieces over the past number of weeks. But what I'll say today is this. God is always against 
evil. God is. God is always against. God isn't moody, like mad about this one day and, and not the next and uh, waiting to, to get us for something we do. God isn't uh, the overbearing uh, parent or authority figure w- waiting to you know, squash you like a bug for every little thing. No, but God is always against evil. God's will is good. God is, has told us his will, an expression of God's character, and it's good for me, it's good for my life, whether I like it or not. It's good for society, whether I like it or not. God is patient. God is compassionate. God is full of grace, full of mercy. God wants good for God's people, and God is always against evil. So God is against starving children, and God is against racism, and God is against murder. And God is against violence against women. God is against husbands and wives not being faithful to each other. God is against unjust business practices and against stealing. And to boil it a little down into my heart and your heart, God is against my selfishness and self-centeredness that keeps coming back and back and back. And the ultimate thing God is against, God is against death itself. And so God's judgment is that God has said, one day I will come and fix all of this. One day. One day the risen Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That is, judgment will end all evil, which I think to some degree we, we would all agree that that's a good thing. We might, not, we might depart on the specifics, but ending evil and atrocities and oppression and injustice sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? But you can't have that without a judging God. A judging God who is perfectly good and perfectly holy and has a perfectly good will. And when that God looks at me and my heart, there's a lot of darkness there and I need help. And yet God as judge or a judgmental God is actually good news for for Christians. As weird as that sounds, because only in God can you have one who is perfectly 100% holy and loving and just, and put those together. So for for Christians, I I hope in the next few weeks, at least uh, to pull you along to believe that, that God's judgment is actually a good thing. And for Christians, in Christ, nothing to be afraid of. So the book of Revelation, we're really only going to look at two chapters at the end, 21 and 22, 21 today, But a brief intro is this, it's hard and it's weird. And it's confusing, and it's the most misunderstood book, the most argued about book of what it means. And so Christians can easily shy away from it. And yet, there's a lot of good in there. And good about Jesus, who who was and is and, and is to come and is reigning on his throne. And he will one day come and end all evil and reign and bring his goodness forever. That's good. But there's a lot of uh, metaphors and strange uh, imagery. It's a kind of literature we just don't write in anymore and don't have 
And so uh, there's a lot of strange things. And it's not, it's not like linear, straight line story of my past week. It's, it's all over the place. It's kind of like a cross between uh, some weird fiction books and a Jackson Pollock painting where you just like hurl buckets of paint at a canvas on the wall with, with all these images from the Bible. But it's a comfort to Christians. And so here, we're going to look at some of it. Before I get to 21, because I'm really only going to preach on one sentence today. But first, Revelation 1. The book begins this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. It goes on and says, To the, these seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who was and is and is to come. And the seven spirits on the throne and from Jesus Christ goes on to say, to him who loves us, that is Jesus, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This book is about Jesus and his coming for our good and, yes, judgment. But from today's reading, Revelation 21, often this is read at, Funerals to give us hope of our future in Christ when our Lord returns. This vision that God gives John was to first comfort Christians. Many Christians had been persecuted uh, across the Roman world then. And so if you can imagine a very, very persecuted church, John's the last living disciple. All the others have been uh, killed for telling people about Jesus and many others. And so you have a suffering church that needs to be comforted. Needs to be given hope. And the hope actually comes from God's future judgment to come and make all things right and to say, yes, Jesus did die for you. He did rise for you. He is reigning and he will come. And so that's the hope Jesus is giving him. And at the end, it's a vision of when Christ returns. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That's it. That's really what I'm preaching on today. And I'm really preaching on the last part. And the sea was no more. Does that sound confusing? It does. Which is why I think it's a, a snapshot of the entire book of Revelation. You can read a phrase and go, I have no idea what that means. And then you scratch and dig and scratch and dig into the scriptures and so many things appear. So it's a bit of a, a microcosm of the entire book. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, first heaven, first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What does that mean? Let's unpack. So there's an image given, and the image is the, the sea, which, what does that mean? What, what, it seems like a kind of a random phrase just stuck in there. When you and I think of the sea, we can think of going to Lake Michigan on a calm summer's day and, and walking with the sand in between your toes and, and seeing some or inland lakes that get much calmer or a pond and just seeing glass across the water and, and we can think of, of peaceful and tranquil things. Not so in the Bible. The sea, all throughout the Bible and other, actually other ancient peoples too, the sea was unpredictable it was chaotic. You didn't have GPS. You didn't know always where it ended, what the weather would be, what would happen. 
And they often believed the forces of evil were out there and could stir up storms. And uh, in Greek mythology, who's the uh, god of the sea? I clearly paid attention in that class that a god of the sea that whipped up bad things. Similar concept, right? The sea was unpredictable. And forces of evil are out there. And, well, Psalm 93, Psalm says, waves have crashed over me and pounded me. Can you think of another book of the Bible where bad things happen in the sea? Jonah, right? Bad things happen at the sea for for Jonah. Uh, In Amos, Amos 9 talks about the sea being the home of an evil serpent. Or Revelation itself, it's mentioned many times, and most often, negatively. And uh, Revelation 13 talks about this beast, this dragon, again, weird images, and it represents the evil one and comes out of the sea to persecute God's people. How about Jesus calming the storm with his disciples? There's more going on than simply a wind and lightning storm. They think evil is there to to attack them and get them, and Jesus has power over it. And so you scratch into into one word in in the scriptures here. The sea represents all these forces of evil out there, but evil's never just out there, is it? It's in here too. All of the, the brokenness, out there that, that's in here and the sin and, and in my life and all of the things that are, that are out of control out there that can wreck your life or, or the temptations in here that can wreck my life or, or the selfishness and self-centeredness that just won't go away. And what is the promise in Revelation? And I saw a new heaven, new earth, as the first heaven and earth had passed away and the sea was no more. You see what's, what we're being told in one little phrase, in one little image, the sea was no more. There's a promise from God to you buried in this image at the end of Revelation. And that the promise is this, if Jesus really is risen from the dead, then yes, your, your sins are forgiven. You have peace now and you have new life and whatever life you have now is not nearly as good as the life to come. Talked a little last week about how we view our, your best life. Well, Christians, truly, your best life is, is never now. It's always later because it's in Christ forever. Jesus will return. He will return to make all things new and all things right and the sea will be no more. There will be no more war, no more cancer, no more uh, research for how bombs can get worse, no more homelessness, no more violence. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away and the sea was no more. This is the glimpse that Jesus gives John that, that all of those things... All that's left is good. But I also would not be fair if I didn't talk about the last verse of this, which makes you all squirm in your seat. (laughs) The sea was no more. Now, I've chosen to 
talk about one image. There's probably like 10 or more in the next number of verses. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Same word as tabernacle in the Old Testament and in John. The tabernacle of God is where God wants to be is with his people, you and me. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death itself shall be no more. This should sound like good news. And even if you're not a a Christian, I would think you would want this to be true even if you didn't believe it to be true. That all evil, all injustice, all hardship, all suffering will one day end and God will come and reign in goodness and peace and justice. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will be there mourning nor crying nor pain. For the former things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, he said, for these are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. If you are thirsty in your soul, you will be given from the spring, given, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment because Jesus made payments in full for you. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then why does, why, why does verse 8 have to be here? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now we'd love to say, oh yes, those people out there that aren't here today, right? All of them. We'd love to pick out uh, sins that we think are really bad and say, ah, those people do those things. Not me. My, my issues aren't that bad. If you, look at, if you find every sin list in the Bible, they're never singled out, especially in the New Testament. They're never singled out. They're all put together. And really uh, juicy ones, juicy sounding ones, are put next to uh, really innocuous sounding ones. Like, oh yeah, everybody's told a little white lie here and there, right? And all liars. Well, I'm not a bad liar, but... But as for the cowardly... Do you know that Jesus called his disciples cowardly? In that story where he calmed the sea, he says, Oh, you of little faith. Same word. He called them cowards. Do you think that's an accident when, the, when uh, John sees that and others read the Gospels and read this? Oh, we're all guilty. Even the disciples are being cowardly, even you and me. And you back up a verse and say, but the payment has already been made in full. I am guilty, you are guilty, and we have a Savior who has paid, it is finished in full, and who gives to the thirsty. He gives us the water, the true water for our souls, that is his true body and blood that he paid for. You see, Jesus has dealt with every evil, that has been done, will be done, and every evil in, in my heart, 
that comes out in my life at the cross. It's finished, it's done, and he is risen and he will return. And it gets even better, and that is if you and I actually believe this, if we trust that the judgment of Jesus is a good thing when he returns, if you actually trust that, you'll actually become a kinder, more patient person. Why? Because you won't need to take revenge on other people because you trust that there's a a God who will actually deal with those things. If you believe that there's a God reigning on the throne who says, I will come back and make all things new and I will deal with this, you don't have to get even. You don't have to say, oh, they got me, I have to get them. You don't have to say, you know what, Jesus forgives me, he can forgive you too. And when you trust that Jesus will come back and make all things new, you can trust him that he will deal with your hurt and your pain and however you've been wronged and you can have peace to know that Jesus knows and he will one day make it up to you. You see, if you and I actually trust that that there is a God on the throne of the universe and he will come back in judgment one day that you can have peace that God is on the throne. He will come back. And whatever is, is done to you like Christians in Revelation, much evil done to them, and yet in return you can show kindness and, as Jesus said, even forgive your enemies. And your heart doesn't have to be anxious, but it can unsettle and trust that there strangely is hope in judgment. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no Amen.